Hi everyone, today is August 20th, 2015. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Sarah Laszlo. Hi, Sarah. Hi. She's Assistant Professor of Psychology and Director of the Brain and Machine Lab at Binghamton. Um, she's interested in the neural implementation of cognition and is getting at this by combining human electrophysiological signals with computational models of neurons to address how children learn to read, among other things. Yes. Right? <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, she's head of the Binghamton Reading Brain Project, all in caps. Yeah. I thought I'd mention that. It sounded like yeah. something really formal. Um, uh, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. And we've got Nicole Wicha. Hi. And me. I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um... So a lot of your work has been kind of devoted to sort of aligning and refining mm -hmm. modeling frameworks from computational mm -hmm. um, science and cognitive science mm -hmm. to get at the, the very best tools for, for, for a neuromechanistic understanding of cognition mm -hmm. with an emphasis on the neuro and the mechanistic yes. part. So, um, and you've been using visual word recognition yes. uh, as well as some semantic studies, but I think yes. those are slightly different. It's a slightly different problem there, we right? We tend to think of visual word recognition as as being semantic. So okay, because mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the questions I always have for you guys: is, is are those two distinct things? It's, I think some people the they same. are. Some okay. people they're not. So the way I and I want you to explain this, mm -hmm. but the way I understand it is that computational models mm -hmm. are concerned with mm -hmm. the sort of component um, processes of kind of handling representations mm -hmm. and I don't know where the starting point is mm -hmm. it's different I guess for most modelers mm -hmm. whereas cognitive neuroscientists usually they start with a behavior and then want to map mm -hmm. um, the processes onto some sort of underlying mm -hmm. real uh, internal mm -hmm. dynamics of neurons mm -hmm. um, at least that's the hope mm -hmm. uh, so is that right first of all <laughs> can you say something about what those two camps are and yeah. what your approach right. has been and, and ERP seem to be like the perfect they are. Thing it's to, a love match right? so, okay, so why don't you go yeah so um, it's, it's interesting the way I got into modeling was that when I was a graduate student at the University of Illinois with Kara Fennermeyer um, we were doing a lot of electrophysiological studies of visual word recognition and we when we'd go out and talk about it at conferences and stuff people would say oh you know what this reminds me of this reminds me of this really nasty theoretical uh, battle between the connectionists on one hand and the dual root modelers on the other hand, and your your data seem to be much more in line with the connectionists. And so we were told many times, oh, you know, you should cast this as being support for the connectionist sort of framework. And we started doing that in our papers, saying, you know, these, these data are supportive of the connectionist framework and not as much of the sort of modular or uh, dual root framework. And we did that, we did that many times. And by the time my PhD was finished, I felt like I wanted to put my money where my mouth was, and I wanted to actually build the connectionist model and see whether we were right. <laughs> So 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 it, 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 when I when I decided I wanted to do that, I started reading the connectionist literature a lot more deeply, and and something I learned, and also the the, the other side, the dark side, the the dual root side, um, and what I what I what I discovered is that this was two theoretical camps that really hated each other. The connectionists and the dual root modelers, especially in the, say the late '90s, really hated each other. There was bad blood there, um, but even they agree on almost nothing. Like fundamental parts of what goes into cognition they disagree about. So connectionists favoring distributed representation and dual root modelers of reading at least believing in sort of localist distribution and connectionists believing in interactivity and dual root modelers being sort of more tending towards uh, modularity or not modularity, um, uh, sort of well, modularity, yeah, or hierarchy, yeah, and connectionists being very in favor of sort of general purpose mechanisms and dual root modelers being very in favor of sort of a different mechanism for every process. So 
fundamental building blocks of cognition. They didn't agree. They did agree on one thing and one thing only, as, and that was that the models that needed to be developed at the beginning of the 21st century needed to be in, include more constraint from cognitive neuroscience. They needed to start getting into the brain because the models were actually all getting so good at modeling the behavioral data that all the models could model all the behavioral data. And so it was becoming hard to think of even a behavioral experiment that you could do to try to differentiate the two models. And so despite hating each other, they all agreed, we need more neuroscience data here. And so that's what I that's what I wrote. My first grant proposal that I wrote that I ever had funded, that's what I said. These people hate each other, but they everyone agrees we should do this, and that's what I'm gonna do. Um, and so that's that's how I got into it, and that's how that's that's where I've where I've stayed ever since is that sort of niche where 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 the cognitive neuroscience meets the, the formal modeling. So what was the verdict? Can you talk about the dual root <laughs> the verdict? The, uh, it's, how did the dual root <laughs> model get its name? It has two roots. <laughs> Um, so in, in the dual root in the dual root model, um, it's there's there's two very distinct ways that you might recognize a word. So on one hand, you might sort of sound it out. Sorry, have to be a little more quiet. Okay, yeah, sorry. sorry. Right. Okay. I won't even bother uh, uh, okay. Um, for for the there's two ways you might recognize a word. You might sound it out, like you might say dog. Oh, dog. Right. You might do it that way, or you might just sort of recognize the whole thing. Right. There, and those are the two roots. So they were they were dual. That was the two roots of the dual root model. That's oh, so it's roots as in R-O-U-T-E, dual route, I guess. If I had said route, if I had said route, you so would have gotten it. I was picturing roots. Oh, roots. Yeah, no, no, it was, it was dual routes, the dual, root, the, the dual route model, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. what, so what was the, the outcome? Yeah. It's, you, can't, it, like, you asked me that, and, and, I, I, and, and I thought as soon as you asked it the first time, I thought, you, you can't really ask that because whoever you ask will say that the outcome was whatever they liked. So if you asked a dual root modeler what the outcome was, they say, oh, the connectionists are idiots. They, they were shown wrong a million times. And if you ask the connectionists, they'll say, well, of course, the dual root models have been completely invalidated in the last 20 years. The connectionist way is the only way. And nowadays you might ask a Bayesian person and the Bayesian might say, both are antiquated. We don't want to do either of those things. <laughs> we want Bayesian models. <laughs> so it's it's really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question that, that makes sense to ask but like sort of from within the community, like before before I even, like if anyone that does this sort of stuff was listening to this and they heard you ask that question, they would know what I was going to say before I even answered. Of course, connectionism is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, we still have the to ask. The you set it up, it was just begging for it. I know, I know, but it was, and that's why, and that's because I set it up that way in the grant proposal and that's why it got funded because, oh man, like yeah, I do want to know, but of course it came out the way that I thought it was going to come out. So you don't want to give us the progress report version? No, I mean the, the connection, the connection, I mean we went, we went, to, we thought, we I had a very specific data set that I collected my last year in grad school and I said I'm going to build a connectionist model of this and I did and it worked so <laughs> but I mean if it hadn't would I be sitting here what I probably would not have even brought the whole thing up <laughs> if it hadn't worked but it did it worked it worked very nicely. How do you go about connecting these mm -hmm. models mm -hmm. into the nervous mm -hmm. system and to and yeah. adding the dimension of yeah. the nervous system? To you know it's it's interesting it's been interesting it's been fun because at least in the in the reading in the reading literature the mo the, the the reading models connect and the dual route ones were very cognitive. So they were very about like sort of what are the thought, what are the 
components of thought that go into this. And so we, ha we, we, we didn't have to put in very much neural realism to make, them a lot, to make the model a lot better than what was out there. I was talking to a bunch of great grad students at lunch, and they were talking about these amazingly intricate mechanisms of stuff that they work on. You know, they're, they're looking at the difference in connectivity and inputs between CA1 and CA2 and CA3. And this one's looking at the dope dif effect of dopamine on S versus C. And this one is looking at, you know, interneuron type 1 versus interneuron type 2. And, and, and I, was, I was sitting there thinking, they think I'm a modeler. They think I know these things, but I don't. I'm like... Some neurons are excitatory and some are inhibitory, you know, and just put and we were the first ones to put that in a, in a reading model. But and, and that's crude. I mean, compared to what a real neuroscience does, that's a ridiculously crude. But it was you have to start somewhere. <laughs> it was better. So we, st we started with the crudest, the crudest stuff. You know, some of the units are going to be excitatory and some are going to be inhibitory. That's very crude. And we started with, you know, the 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 ex the interneuro the in inhibitory connections are going to be more range restricted than the excitatory ones. It's crude stuff, but you got to start somewhere. We started with um, there are going to be finite resources for these neurons. They they can't keep firing forever. <laughs> they, that all this really simple stuff that to a neuroscientist it seems like laughable, but it was so far ahead of the nothing that was in the existing cognitive models that it seemed like great so progress. <laughs> from a implementation point of view, uh -huh. your models actually contain neurons. Oh. No, so the implementational we call them, no, so they're they're the standard connectionist units. So it's 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 just a it's a mathematical formalism that each it's each 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 unit is just a you know a location and memory of of a number that's the activation of that unit and it's associated with some sort of um, activation function. So so you can think of them as we 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 try not to think of them as neurons. They're units. So a, a unit. <laughs> Probably correspond to the many some kind neurons. Of collection of yes, neurons. yes, many neurons. Yes, and then with then some of those mm. units will will be so some collections of neurons mm. will be inhibitory yes. collections, and right? Excitatory collections. collections. Yes, yes. And then those collections interact with interact each with each other. Yes. And is there dynamics in their interactions? Yes. So and they they're described by differential equations or something. Um, they're 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 not they're they're not differential equations. They're they're it's discrete time. The time is discrete. Um, but they they have the the activation functions like making the right activation functions has been one of the sort of interesting nitty gritty bits. So the excitatory neurons and the inhibitory neurons are governed by different um, activation functions. So the inhibitory neurons have two extra constraints that the excitatory neurons don't. First, they have a more extreme um, resource sort of resource constraint. They can't. They can't. They get. They get fatigued. They get okay. fatigued um, to an extent that the excitatory neurons. The excitatory neurons can saturate, but they don't get fatigued. The inhibitory neurons get fatigued, and they also the excitatory neurons follow the sort of standard sigmoidal activation function, which is what all connectionist models basically use. The inhibitory neurons don't have an upper saturation. They can keep firing more and more and more the more they want as much as they want and that's 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 a little that's a little that's a little funny because of course there's real neurons can't fire infinitely fast so that's we could do some improvement there but they're the the, the getting the right functions for all the neurons has been really interesting so basically these uh, I'm sorry to dwell on uh, that, that's okay on, on <laughs> this the is the good part <laughs> the, uh, these these units mm -hmm. interact by rates yep. so each unit it transmits a rate to other units. Um, it's not a, so these are not rate coded. They are act, sort of active. I, I mean, it, 
they're not like they're the formal class of rate coded models. These are not. So these are not spiking models. But the, the activation values that are sent, you could you might as well think of it as a rate. But it's it's not. It's not actually. It's it's implementationally, it is not implemented as a as a as a, as a spiking model. Value that yes, sort of represents, represents the am the amount of firing. Yeah, but it's and yeah. then mm -hmm. those there are weights. Yes, there are weights. Some kind of weight, and they're learned. Mm -hmm. And then those things have a learning. Yes, they learn. And then the activation curve you're talking about mm -hmm. is the threshold or threshold-like thing yes. that converts right. the, all the weighted activation to, to output. To its output. Yes, okay, that's right. right. And, and so, so then in a model like that, mm -hmm. that, uh, that would be useful in yeah. understanding mm -hmm. language yeah. comprehension, <laughs> which would have to be a, of appreciable size. It's very large, yes. Then uh, uh, there would be many such units. Yes, there are about 200 units in the model. Uh -huh. And so it's fully connected, so there's you know tens of thousands of connections, which is, uh -huh. we were talking, uh, uh, Charles and I were talking earlier this morning about, he showed me, he did, showed me my own diagram. <laughs> <laughs> and and made me and made me regret the the day I was born. Um, but but it's there's many feed Charlie does that. yeah <laughs> purely feed forward connections in 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 the model and it's not because we think that the 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 real system is actually feed forward but simply because if you have forty thousand connections and you have full recurrence then the model is exponentially longer to train and even on the kind of you know we had the the supercomputing cluster at Carnegie Mellon when I was working on this which is a good one. <laughs> It was. It was. It would have been impossible to do any real work. It would have been too big. So, yeah, they're big. They're big models. <laughs> it's. I mean, you need a big model for language comprehension. You can't because it. You you can't get even. You know, the human brain, the language comprehension system is like most of the brain. So if you're if you're looking at something that's like most of the human brain, that's that's a good amount of processing processing well, power. Tools for making these models, or do you have to hand code these? Um, it's we have a we have a a so there's like a base scripting package that you can download off the internet for that will that will do the sort of the you know it's and it's in an interpreted language so you can say you can write a script that's like new network <laughs> level semantics units equal fifty that kind of fifty units connect units but then it it only gives you the basic stuff so that that model wouldn't separate that the base thing wouldn't do all the added on stuff that we did. So we have to write the code to separate the excitation inhibition. We have to write the, any new activation function that we want, we have to write. And so that was that was a lot of what I did when I was a postdoc, was writing that stuff. Uh -huh. yeah. So can you say something? So this is a kind of a technical thing, and mm -hmm. it's just totally just something that I've never understood. Mm -hmm. So it seems like, mm -hmm. so can you say, say something about um, time domain versus frequency domain mm -hmm. um, analysis of ERP signals? Because wow. it, seem, it yeah. seems like you're, I've never seen this Frequency or I never understood that I'm looking at frequency domain analysis. <laughs> right. So can you just explain something about what yeah. So actually, because of the because of the neural realism that we put in this model, we've been able to do frequency domain and both time and frequency domain analysis because we sort of treat the output like it was a firing rate, even though it technically isn't. Um, and so and so we do both. Um, so the so in in in, in a human, like what the data that we're modeling, the time domain stuff is the potential over time, and then we can do that's what we record, and then we can do math on, we can do Fourier transform on it to get the frequency over time. We can do that in the model the time domain it there's there's no time to the model because the model is a mathematical abstraction so it um so so we just look at how the activation of each unit in the model changes with each update of the model so that's the time domain and then the and then we we don't Fourier Fourier transform it like we do the ERP data we actually just we can we can look at how we can look at how the activation changes over time but we can also just look at 
saying that we just had one time point, which is the whole model, what are the frequency characteristics of the model? And so, and so it's, it's harder to describe the time frequency thing in, in the model because there's neither, because there isn't actual time, um, but, it, but it's, 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 and because we don't do the same math on it that we usually do to get frequency main, d- domain information, which is the Fourier transform. So what is the abstraction? Though? What are we getting at with looking at frequency domain stuff? Yeah, so, so the frequency domain stuff, um, the reason we started to look at it was because there are lots of ways. So if you have a time series, if you have a time, like a, a, a two time series, so two waveforms, they and say they differ in their amplitude right they can they're I'm making hand movements which no one can see but say say two waveforms differ in their amplitude they could differ in their amplitude and be lots of different shapes right so you can imagine sort of like one mountaintop being higher than the other that's one shape or maybe one table that's taller than another that's another shape or one sine wave with a higher peak than another than another that's different another way that they could be they could be different amplitude but lots of different shapes by putting the frequency analysis into it we we constrain both the amplitude and the shape a little bit and so it's hard Harder. It's harder to do a simulation that will match both the time and frequency information than just the time information. So that's why so we. What do does it. that mean in terms of neurons and what they're in doing? Terms of, well, so so as as Charles was saying is saying earlier, um, well, or at least alluding to earlier, the the one of the one of the in the in the sort of more computational neuroscience sort of land farther into the, the neuroscience side of it than I am. Um, there's, the, there's, there's an important kind of model, which is a rate, a rate coding model. And then that's, that's directly analogous to frequency because a rate is like a frequency. So, so, so there's, so there's that. So if you're interested in sort of oscillations in a neuron, if you're interested in oscillations or spike rates, then the frequency domain information is useful and interesting. Uh, but I, I, I don't care about that stuff, so I really only do it for the challenge. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. It's hard to match them both. It's, it's, it's not easy to match either, but it's much harder to match them both. And so that's why I like it, but I don't actually care about that part of it. Yeah, <laughs> I, just thinking about ERPs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're used to looking at ERPs. Yeah. They are of certain length, yeah. and, um, which is usually like a second or there. Second, yep, right. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and so the, the, we've had many trials, and we've pulled out one second mm-hmm. out of each trial and mm-hmm. average them together and mm-hmm. we have a waveform. Mm-hmm. And now people point at some latency. Mm-hmm. Well, between 150 and 250 milliseconds, mm-hmm. I see something. Mm-hmm. And between 300 and 400 milliseconds, mm-hmm. I see something. So the frequency domain approach is, is trying to get at that mm-hmm. also, right? I mean, because these different frequency components determine where the... Mm-hmm. ERPs are changing yeah. in that one second. Um, most of the ERPs that people are interested in in language, uh, speaking for myself, I don't know if Nicole would agree, but the major ones that I'm interested in in the language comprehension domain are are, are mostly in the alpha range, so they're mostly about you know ten, five to ten ish hertz sort of things. So the the frequency doesn't the frequency, in my opinion, the frequency response doesn't help to differentiate the components. So if you look at a the spectrum yeah. of an ERP, yeah. it's got some stuff, yeah. <laughs> and it looks pretty much the same yeah. all the time. Yeah, like each 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 one of the each one of the each one of like each one of the components that I might be interested in. So especially those are the N two fifty and the N four hundred. Their frequency frequency characteristics are pretty similar to each other. You couldn't different. I don't. It would be hard to differentiate them based on their frequency alone. I believe. I, I'm not. I haven't tried it, but this I think it would be. This is why we hard. don't see that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's. I think that's probably why. <laughs> well, yeah. 
So I, I kind of want you to plug SarahLaszlo.com. Oh, yeah. The cool stuff that our listeners might find there. Oh, Sarah <laughs> Yeah, a pie recipe. A pie recipe, yeah. So SarahLaszlo.com is a little eclectic. The top the top blog entry on it right now is a video about my brain biometric work that my university produced. The second entry is my pie crust recipe. And then the one underneath that, I think, is a bunch of uh, links to, like, uh, Wired.com and ScientificAmerican.com about my brain biometric research. Let's uh, talk about biometrics. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, the brain biometric stuff I get is is I've done is really crazy, and it's been a media bomb this summer. I like have had to like block off hours of my afternoon for media requests, which is not what you expect when you're an academic psychologist. And the the main the main the reason that people are all excited about it really I think is just the name, which is cool, which is brain print. Um, many people had tried to do brain biometrics before us and had more or less success, but they never had a cool name like we did. So the media really <laughs> caught on to it when we called it brain print. Um, and the basic idea is that we are using people's uh, electrophysiology, their their ongoing brain activity to identify them. Just like um, your iPhone identifies you with your fingerprint, or if you've ever seen any sort of spy movie, someone might be identified by their retinal print. Um, but we want to use your brain activity to identify you in the same way. And people think it's cool because it's science fiction. Like um, we have a, I have a video clip that I show in my talks when I talk about uh, the brain biometric stuff that's from the second X-Men movie, um, where uh, Professor X has a system. He's a telepath, and he has a system that lets him uh, amplify his telepathy and like read people's minds all over the world but it's keyed to his brain activity so when uh, Mystique comes in and tries to use this system um, when, tries to impersonate Professor X and use the system it detects her brain activity and it like zaps her because she's not the right person and so this is this is what we're doing like, we're identifying <laughs> without people the zaps. It's, so without the zapping no there's no zapping no zapping happens yeah <laughs> so it's, it's, it's I mean it's really it's literally science fiction stuff which so is pretty cool so how, how much sampling do you need to do to get a brain print? Um, it's about two minutes worth of data. It takes longer than two minutes to acquire it because we have to put the stuff on the person's head and explain to them what we're going to do and all that kind and of stuff. And how many electrodes? Uh, we can do it with one. Well, we can do it with one active sensor. We also need a, a reference and a, a ground for common mode rejection, but one active sensor, we can do it. But but to get my brain print, yeah. I have to be doing a particular thing. You have to be doing a thing, yes. And then for you to detect me, mm. I have to be doing that thing again. Yes, that's true. Yes. So... Uh, but in principle, mm -hmm. if my brain activity is really that idiosyncratic, mm -hmm. then you could test me doing this, test me doing that, mm -hmm. and after a while you see some kind of pattern, maybe you could recognize my yes. brain print no yes. matter what I was doing. No matter what you were doing. Well, part of, part of what makes the method that we have robust is that we have you do a whole bunch of different things, and then we sort of, in each one of those each one of those is a little bit unique the way you do it. And then when you combine them, it's even more unique. So you and I don't have the same taste in food. We also don't have, we also don't like the same celebrities and we also don't have exactly the same vocabulary and the patterns of our visual cortex are not exactly the same. So we're different on each of those individually. And it's even, we're even more likely to differ on, like we're not, no two people are going to have the same exact preferences in foods and in celebrities and in vocabulary and in their visual cortex. So what's so, the typical set of things you would have people do while you're yeah. So what we have them do is they see a whole bunch of images and, and the task from the participant's point of view is they have to push a button when they see something that's in color and every, everything else is in black and white. And so they see uh, sign gratings, they see celebrity faces, they see foods, they see low frequency words. And I feel like I'm always forgetting one. And Oh, no, that's it. I'm pretty sure that's it. That's 
most of them anyway. And they just the have frequency to, word means a word that we don't that you don't see very much. It's not so, a really high sounding. No, word. no, so no, 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 no. So it's like, so it's like, so like dog, dog is a high frequency word, and psoriasis is a low frequency oh, okay. word. So they see they think see things like the psoriasis and conundrum, and you know, they're they're GRE words. We got right. them from the GRE from the GRE <laughs> website, and so not everybody knows what all of them mean. Yeah. And then and then you've got you have like ERPs for each yeah. of those yes. things. Yes. Each of those trials. Yes. And now how do you combine them to get the uniqueness yeah. thing? Yeah. So um, we so we ha- we have a, an ERP for each of those things over every electrode for every person. And what we do is we split each person's data in half. So we have what we call a reference half and a challenge half. And then we have a whole bunch of different machine learning techniques that we can use to try to see whose data comes from who. But it turns out we did a we did a formal study on this on a bunch of different le- machine learning techniques, and it turns out that um, simply doing a discriminant function based on the normalized cross correlation between pairs of waveforms was as effective as doing something super fancy like support vector machines or naive discriminant learning. Like the cross correlation discriminant function was fine, and we can get 100% accuracy with it, so we use it, because it's, it's computationally very light, like we don't have to train it, and we don't have to we don't have to do any sort of jackknifing to split up to make multiple examples for training, we just need one average from each person, we don't have to do a training, we cross-correlate them, and then we go, it's, you can do it in a spreadsheet, actually, you could almost do it, the Excel won't do, Excel won't do the normalization, but you could almost do it in Microsoft Excel, almost, it wouldn't be as fast as when we do it the way we have it implemented, but you could almost do it in Excel. It's crazy. It's the easiest, I don't know, it's amazing. That would be a travesty. <laughs> yeah, if you could do it in Excel, I know. <laughs> I know, that would be a travesty. So you can't, you can't. We could almost do it. It's simple enough that you could almost do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, uh, so what you're doing is, uh, tell me what it, what it means, discriminant analysis. Uh, the, 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 the normalized, the cross-correlation discriminant is very, it's, 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 it's so stupid, you almost won't even believe it. So we take, so each person, so say the, the four of us all sitting here are all in the system, and I, I have... I have previously registered my brain print, and I come in, and I, 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 I'm saying, I'm Sarah, let me into the system. It takes the, 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 EG, the ERP data that I, that, I, that I make when I come in saying, let me into the system, and it cross-correlates it with your data, or sorry, with Charles's data, and with Nicole's data, and with Selma, Selma's data, and, and, it, and, whichever, and, and, and with mine from the first time I came into the system. And whichever cross-correlation is the highest, that's who it says it is. Uh-huh. So in order for me to be accurately identified, my self-self correlation has to be larger than any of the self-other correlations. And that's it. That's all it is. And that's, so that's collecting all the data, automatically collecting yeah. all the data yeah. from all these different yes. situations. Yes, yes, it does it, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very, the, the code is very slim. It's So if Mystique walked in, yeah. <laughs> you didn't have any record. Yeah. <laughs> You'd get a closest match. You would get a closest, you would get a closest match. Yes, you would. It would identify her as someone. Uh-huh. It would identify her as someone. But the thing is that, she would there would be no way so if she was trying if Mystique was trying to impersonate Nicole yes she would have she would have to say I want to be she wouldn't just say let me in she would say I'm Nicole and she'd have no way of knowing whether her Mystique based way and brain activity was actually going to be misclassified as Nicole or whether it might be misclassified as Charles and so she'd she'd it wouldn't it would not help her <laughs> so you had to tell me something about how mm-hmm. see you've got this brain print now mm-hmm. that your next step did mm-hmm. you want to talk about the next stuff? step oh my gosh so the next step is the brain hacking and so this is relevant to Mystique so what if Mystique wants to impersonate Nicole can Mystique can, maybe Mystique's brain activity isn't very much like Nicole's 
just, you know, out of the womb. But can Mystique train, can she train her brain to be more like Nicole's? And so that's what we're trying to do now. Well, Mystique totally can, because Mystique, Mystique turns can. into that. Mystique can. Right, yes. Mystique, yes. Mystique does. She turns into that. Yeah, right, right. yeah, yeah. So Mystique, well, let's so maybe. Okay, this maybe is Mystique. Okay, okay. all right, yeah. So, so, so Iceman comes along, and he wants to, <laughs> Iceman wants to impersonate Nicole's brain. So can, can Iceman train his brain to, to, to impersonate Nicole's? And so, so this is what we're calling this brain hacking. And so what this, so what we've been having, um, the, the, we only have had one pilot subject with this so far. So the pilot subject comes in and they, they train, they do training to try to train their EEG to be more similar to the target EEG. Um, and we do it with a technique called flicker entrainment, which is, it's been known for a very long time that if you flicker uh, a, a monitor, like a computer monitor, you just flicker it black and white at someone, say at 10 hertz, their their EEG activity entrains to that flicker, and you start to see an increase in 10 hertz power in the in the resultant EEG. And so we, we're, we're doing this flicker entrainment where instead of it flickering at 10 hertz, it flickers every time there's a peak in the target EEG. So every time there's an inflection in the EEG that the person is trying to imitate, there's a flicker. And so it's basically like non-invasive brain stimulation. We're stimulating stimulating the visual cortex in the pattern that we want the EG to take on and it works which is terrifying so it works it works it so after say I think it was like 12 hours of practice of doing this our pilot subject went from being sort of the 25th or so best match to his target to being like the 10th best match or the fifth best match so we got better he didn't get good enough to fool the classifier but he definitely got more similar to the target that he was trying to impersonate which is crazy I didn't believe it but it, it was true <laughs> it's true you can see it in the waveforms it's pretty insane so the flicker is just some yeah. frequency or it's the actual erp that they're trying it's, to it's the erp so it's uh-huh. so it's so like we, we, we measure the erp for the target and then we extract the inflections and then every time there's an inflection inflection the screen changes color uh-huh. and it's so it's so it's like it's giving you a stimulation every time we want to peak in the and so we're gonna so this is visual stimulation but the next things we're gonna do is we're gonna do like beeps we're gonna do auditory stimulation and we're gonna do we're gonna get smart watches and the smart the smart the smartwatches these days they have little actuators that make it feel like you're getting tapped is and that so an apple watch yeah this I is an apple watch you yeah 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 it's an apple watch and so we're gonna we're gonna program them to tap you so you're getting tactile and auditory and visual stimulation all like in the in this all uh, entrained to the target that's what we're that's we're gonna get we need some money for that that's gonna be more expensive but um, that's what we're gonna do we're trying to get the NSF to so give it's us a tough thing that. to work on the brain print mm-hmm. at the same time as a brain hack because one set of results kind of <laughs> yeah. negates the other set of results no, like we we're happy with the brain hack results because it's in sort of the sweet spot. It shows that you can train your brain, but not well enough to trick the classifier. So like you you might if you were a malicious individual trying to break into the Pentagon, you could you could train your brain. You could do it. You might you might this is might the first thing that might occur to you to try, which is because it's the first thing that occurred to, to us. You might try it and you might you might sort of see yourself progressing. You might be able to see that your activity, assuming you have the right equipment and all these other things, you your activity is sort of progressing. It's getting a little better, but it's not getting good enough to fool the classifier, which is I think pretty cool. It's pretty crazy. Pretty, pretty, pretty crazy stuff, actually. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. And that's all NSF funded. Mm-hmm. It's all NSF. With yep. the subdivision. The, the Secure and trustworthy cyberspace. <laughs> yeah. So the interest group. Mm-hmm. So, okay, good. No. Mm-hmm. There you go. Oh, I was going to shift it to the Reading Brain Project. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Is that where you're going? Sure. Um, so... so your bread and butter. So these are all like fun, cool, yeah, side projects. <laughs> these are my side projects. They, they fund the bill. Side they pay the bills. 
<laughs> but uh, your bread and butter is at Reading Brain Project. Yes, that's and, right. Um, I, 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 it's really awesome. Mm-hmm. That oh, some, thank you. you know, that people are trying to look for this. Uh, you want to talk about it? The Reading Brain Project? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so... The basic goal of the Reading Brain Project is to identify um, uh, uh, brain markers of dyslexia to enable early identification of children that might be at risk for dyslexia before they start to fall behind in school. That's it in a nutshell. It's very complicated, but... (laughs) But I talk about it a lot, so I can describe it in 30 seconds if I have to, mm-hmm. which I just did. So, <laughs> so one of the things about it that, that um, seems to be uh, coming out in your data mm-hmm. is that uh, the patterns that you pick up mm-hmm. uh, based on early, you know, or before, pre-reading, yeah. really. Like yeah. These are kids, you're Four years old. kids that are pre-reading. Yeah. Um, that their patterns, uh, their, their brain activity changes in response to mm-hmm. phonological information early on mm-hmm. and then more meaning stuff mm-hmm. later on. Yeah. And you were mentioning how um, this is kind of relates to how they're being taught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Early on, they get a lot of phonological right. feedback, and yes. later they start focusing on semantics later. Right. And the first thing that came to mind was um, is this true for English? <laughs> right. Or, or is this <laughs> going to be a universal yeah. reading yeah. element? You know, it's. The money for studying uh, reading acquisition in America comes from the American Department of Education. So they <laughs> they know a lot about and care a lot about the way it's done in the United States. And they are not very interested in giving you money to f- study how it's done in countries that aren't the United States. So I don't I know nothing. I know nothing about like it does what this what this is like. I, I know that in general stuff that's really important in the in the studies that we do. Um, so things like uh, the the fact that in English there's basically no lexicality effect anywhere in early ERPs, but there's a huge regularity effect. That is not as true in more orthographically transparent languages. So like Italian being well, there an was example. a lot. Yeah. I was sad. This is this is talk, shop talk, right? Yeah, yeah. I bet I bet there's lots of people that didn't understand the stuff about the about the about the about the, about the activation functions. Well, I'm super high density. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. There's quite a few terms. Yeah, there. yeah. yeah. Um, the the the, the the stuff of so in in English in English um, letter biograms like so pairs of letters the the frequency of biograms is super predictive of ERP morphology. It's like a big, and, and the regu- the orthographic regularity, so how similar a word is to other words in, in the language. In English, this is has a huge effect on ERPs, and it seems to be the case that this effect is not as large in, in languages where the, or, the orthography is more transparent, because there doesn't, because, because the because the way that the kids, the way the kids learn and the way the adults read, is um, not as dependent on sort of the full, the full form. It's more like it can be more letter by letter. It's more one to one mapping. More one to one mapping. Yes, thank you. The letter sound. Yeah, letter sound references are more one to one. So biogram means like two letters. Two letters. That means something. That means that, and they happen together. They happen together a lot. Okay. And if you and if you and and in English you have to pay learn a lot about biograms because they. Like so, the the one that my reading teacher friend calls the sneaky e. So like, if you have an e at the end of like late in the word late, there's an e there. You need to know actually a whole trigram, the ate. You do a different thing with that a when the sneaky e is there than if it was like lats 
Like that trigram, you do a different thing with that word because of that sequence. But that's not as important when there's a in the languages where there's a more one-to-one mapping between the letters and the sounds because you don't have to... So I was wondering about this um, with relation to Mm -hmm. dyslexia Uh because is there more dyslexia in English? Right, (laughs) yeah. So so seemingly... (laughs) Well, I mean, we could talk about a lot of things. Like, is it because the orthography is weird? Is it because the American school system? Mm, Like, there's there's many things that could contribute to there being more dyslexia in English. Um, But seemingly seemingly more orthographically opaque languages are there are more there's it makes sense it's harder to acquire an orthographically opaque language because you have because just because it's opaque it's harder to learn um so seemingly seemingly that's true and certainly i had a a woman uh patsy young visiting my lab this summer and she studies uh dyslexia but in uh she's from hong kong so she uh she studies it in cantonese and it's a completely different it's completely different disorder it's because they don't the thing that we call phonological awareness doesn't exist in Chinese in the same way because the characters are like a unit you don't you don't sound out you don't sound out Chinese that's not a thing that you would do so it's a completely different disorder Um, and it exists but the the way that you would study it like the way they study it the things they assess is very very different from what we do so do you think that uh, so what the goal of this is to try to detect kids early on and try to use those um, the measures Mm -hmm. Um, for for doing something about it, yes. early intervention is always yes. important right. yes. in, in in disorders. Yeah, um, how, do you think uh, that you are going to be able to use these ERPs to do that? Yeah, we're gonna try. <laughs> Um, we're going to try. We want to have the full data set. We have four years out of a planned five years that we might keep going after five if we can, just because why wouldn't you? Um, um, we we don't we, we want to wait until we have the full data set before we start trying to trying to build up norms so we could say like, oh, this is a disordered, a disordered looking kindergartner and this is a non-disordered looking kindergartner. We, we really want to have everything before we start to do that. But we're going to try. But how do you see that imp being implemented? I mean, in, right. Yeah. Now what they do is they give a paper and pencil yes, test know. for about two minutes. <laughs> yeah, right, you see yourself going yeah. into every kindergarten and yeah. putting on an EIP cap. It's interesting. The grad students asked me this exact same question at lunch, um, so I have my answer ready. So the so so the ERP system that does this is expensive. It's like a seventy thousand dollar system, and that's without counting the chamber, which is another sixty thousand. So you're, so public schools are not going to have one of these, and we we recognize this. So we think it might be more useful for say for example example something like a Sylvan learning center where uh, if a, say and a dyslexia is hereditary so if, if you have two dyslexic parents and they want to know you know is our kid should we need is our kid gonna is our kid at, they already know the kid is at risk but how at risk is the kid they might take them to some some a more specialized sort of place that could afford to have equipment like this and and, and get them tested out and see how they're going to be so that's so I think we I think we see it more that way I mean EEG equipment like the things the engineers are doing these days is amazing. It's getting cheaper. It's getting better. Maybe one day dry application, dry, yeah, we'll dry application. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the elect, we couldn't. This stuff that we do with the kids, we couldn't have even done this study uh, ten years ago because we we use a special we use active active amplification electrodes. And if we'd had to use regular like silver silver chloride or gold, what do you use gold silver silver, silver chloride? Silver. Yeah, that's right. Kudos lab. Yeah, <laughs> silver silver chloride. If if they use uh, with those, you would ne- we would never have been able to collect this from kids because the, the application procedure is too aversive, but they wouldn't sit through it. <laughs> 
So, so, I gotta so. get those dry electro technology. Yeah. Well, there's a there's another thing is we've been so we're moving into the yeah. kid world. Yeah, too, yeah, and we would like to be able to take our ERP mobile yeah. ERP system yes. into schools. But yeah, of course the the even if you can get the kid to yeah. do it yeah. in the school, yeah, um, the added complication is the noise factor. Yes. I mean, just not just electrical noise, yes. but the noise, the noise of the kids. Yeah, <laughs> other things, things going on. Yeah, a recess. So I have this. Uh, under, um, uh, graduate student mm. in the engineering department. Mm-hmm. He's developing a mobile mm-hmm. head unit. Oh wow! That's <laughs> sound canceling. The foam head, yeah. <laughs> foam, foam helmet. Yeah. So they, the kid can stick their head in it. And, and uh, the um, I have a I have a friend at Michigan State who's a kinesiologist, and he studies um, ERPs and fitness. And he has like an egg chair that's like a, it's like a chair that you sit in. Yeah, yeah, it's like a gaming egg. chair. Yeah, and it, and it, it cancels all the noise. Mm-hmm. So like so like the, you sit in this chair and it's like a I quiet look, zone. Yeah. You to it, but they're not portable. They're not portable, right? They're, pretty heavy. No, they're more portable than a, a EEG chamber, yes, for sure. But, <laughs> but not as good as a foam head. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Foam head is pretty cool. Yeah, so. we're we're lucky. We have these soundproof RF shielded chambers that are good. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, we, like, people come to us and want us, they want us to do stuff in the schools. Like, like in upstate New York, there's not a lot of options for parents that want to get their kids help outside of the schools. And so we get, like, parents want us to do stuff for them, and the schools maybe ask, can you come in and do some screenings? And we just can't can't do it. It's just too, but we, we can't. <laughs> We can. I wish we could. So one of the cool things is here that you're. It's an, this is, these are individual longitudinal yes. studies. Yes, that's right. But yet you have this huge population at these mar- at these like critical. I know developmental points. So yeah. Are you processing like the yeah full so population data? Yeah. So like we're we're into year four now, and so consequently we're just now writing up the year three data. That's we about a we're about a year behind in the data write ups, and so the. First year, first two year papers were on individual stuff. The year three paper, what we're thinking we're going to do is we're going to show, okay, this is what, say, the response to words looks like kindergarten or pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. Um, and and how, does it, how does it change in the whole population? How does it change over that amount of time? Which is, that's what my postdoc wanted to do from the start when she got to Binghamton, but I made her do this report card stuff first. But so, yeah. Postdoc. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I know. You have to come in and you're 10. Yeah, right. You have all the data. Right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so she, she, but that's what we're going to do next is we are going to look at the full, the full population that we have up through year three, which I think is like 40-ish kids. Um, But it's cross-sectional, so not everybody, not all the ninth graders started in kindergarten. The ninth graders that we have now started in fifth grade the fourth grader started in kindergarten and we're gonna go so but but through all that we have pre-k all the way up to ninth grade and we're gonna we're gonna do that next that's what we're that's my postdoc while I'm gone this week that's one of the things she's doing is she's just trying to figure out like how to organize that data in a way that is <laughs> manageable um to for analysis this so how do you how do you manage this is the last question okay we're getting, probably getting late for our next meeting okay but how do you manage the kind of difference between looking at individual mm-hmm. variability versus trying to collapse the variability? Because that's always such a big question with these kinds of yeah. studies. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I when I came here, to, when I was getting ready to give this talk, actually, that I gave today, I realized I didn't have any 
ERP figures of all the kids because we never we never collapse them like we because we made such a, a big deal in our grant proposals and all our papers that we write about oh, you shouldn't put all the kids together every kid is different you shouldn't put them together and so it's it's become sort of like a like if if a if a grad student brings me a figure that's collapsed I'm like oh don't do it. undo it <laughs> undo it undo it I don't want to put that up I don't want to be I don't want to be I don't want to be doing I don't want to be guilty of the thing that I'm saying not to do so I didn't actually even have a group figure until about two weeks ago so we really like we really the thing that's not one of the things that's novel about this and one of the things we're proud of is the 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 commitment to the individual part of it and so we almost never we never do group analysis ever the analysis is always by by subject um and we we try not to even really look at the groups like we really try we we've been really i mean eventually you know we're gonna look at them and long-term people are gonna look at them but up until this point we've tried really hard to just always keep it individual we, we tried <laughs> it's hard you want it's because the way you want to look at it is group as subject average but we i've been really like really adamant about not doing that so it sort of makes it, it kind of you have to sort of find um a happy medium though right between under, <laughs> between it's understanding the brain as as a mm-hmm. sort of a mm-hmm something that starts on this fixed trajectory uh, and maybe then, mm-hmm. you know, sort of diverges into mm-hmm. maybe even chaos yeah. <laughs> versus finding, you know, sort yeah. of a, a an actual mm-hmm. principle that mm-hmm. runs through mm-hmm. the development of certain key yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I mean, yeah. So so it's it's true. Like if we only ever look at individuals, what do we learn about the human condition? About we don't, the brain. We don't, about yeah. the brain. Like yeah. we don't we don't really learn. We might not learn too much. But I think, I mean, I think that you you don't have to do a group analysis to be able to extract something, some more general principle. So in the talk I gave today, every piece of analysis that I showed was individual. I didn't show any grouped data, but we still were able to make some conclusions about about kids as a whole so that their reading becomes more supported by more complex information the older they get and that vocabulary is more important than maybe it sometimes gets credit for in the literacy literature. We were able to learn those things from looking at the data over the years, even though we never and we never average subjects together. So I think it's I think it's it's possible to draw conclusions that are more general, even if you don't, even if you're not, if you don't have a group as an analytic unit. Well, thank you for joining us, mm. SarahLaslo.com. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. Anytime. <laughs>